Hi, I'm Tara. Hi, I'm Michelle. Welcome back to Books and Beyond with Bound, where we talk to some of the finest writers in India to find out what makes them tick. This episode is really special today, right, Michelle? Because yeah. for the first time, we have two guests. <laughs> so we have the translator and the author of this very special book called The Sickle. It's a book that goes into the farmers' plights in India, and it's actually a work of fiction. Yeah, and I'm so happy that you know translations are actually getting the attention they deserve, Tara. You know, through awards like JCB, and so many listeners actually reached out to us to cover translations. So here we are, and you know, actually we always wanted to know like what goes on, you know, between a translator and an author. Yeah, absolutely, and you know, we've got India's best translator on board as a guest. Couldn't ask for more, Arunava Sinha. So he's translated over sixty books, and he also juggles teaching, translating, editor, editing. He's just wow, amazing. One of the premier people to talk to. So he speaks to us about his process and also about his relationship with another very fascinating author, Anita Agnihotri. She's the author of a sickle, and she is an award-winning veteran writer who's written over thirty-five books in Bengali. Just. Both fantastic so and cool. so accomplished people, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and she's actually traveled all over India, you know. And she's gathered insight from so many people she's spoken to. And her works are actually not only translated in regional languages, by the way, but also in Swedish and German. There was one metaphor that I loved that Arunava spoke about. You know, when I asked him, you know, what is what what is it like to translate something? And he said that while a writer has a complete stage to dance, a translator has to perform that exact same dance on a tightrope. Yeah, really. I mean, I would have never thought of it that way. It made me see it, you know, from a whole different light. And I also found it interesting, you know, that he says translation can be really big in the next five years because they have been translated into so many languages like Bhojpuri, Rajasthani, Gujarati, Assamese, and what not. I've always said we have the most in India, and we really have so much potential. We need to make <laughs> yeah. use of it, and this is just makes me so happy. But why we are also very happy today because we got good news. Books and Beyond is trending in eight countries, including Sweden. Can you believe it, Michelle? <laughs> no, actually, when I woke up to that news, I was like, oh my god! You know, all the hard work is paying off. So happy. And now we are also actually producing podcasts for other storytellers and brands. So if you're thinking of starting your own podcast, DM us or reach out to us at connect at boundindia dot com. We will yeah. help you do that. Yeah, can't wait to produce and put more stories out into the world. Yeah. But first, let's speak to Anita about how her books have managed to reach so many countries and readers all over the globe. Yeah, let's dive in. Hi Anita, welcome to our podcast. We are so glad to be talking to you today. Thank you, thank you, Tara and Michelle. Welcome to our podcast, Anita. Actually, a lot of our listeners have, you know, they have asked us to cover translation, and we came across your book, The Sickle. We couldn't put it down. We loved it. So we were wondering, how did the idea for the book come to you, and and how did you cope with such hard hitting truths? When I went to Marathwada for the first time. i was uh, talking to the women and marathwada was really at the top of uh, you know the adverse sex ratio as we call it the number of girl children at birth compared to the number of thousand boys born so that was really really one of the lowest in the country i was talking about uh, 2012 or so and at the same time we i also made the women who works as hands you know sugarcane uh, labor who are migrant from marathwada they come to western maharashtra to work and they are uh, the kind of uh, life they lead you know the way they live i thought it is in a fairly advanced state like maharashtra is almost a subhuman existence and then as i went deeper it struck me that it is not only a uh, deprivation of certain basic qualities of life it is much more than that it is like the migration which is uh, forced by drought drought again has a deep politics and economics of its own 
And when they're driven by that, they leave their home for six to eight months in a year and come to stay in shanties. At the same time, there's a situation where young women, they opt to uh, get their uterus removed when they come to the field. Because the idea is in a place where there is no sanitation, there is no drinking water facility. And if they get an unwanted pregnancy by any reason, nobody is going to own them up. So this thing is extremely tragic, I thought. So all this was building up in my mind when I also came across this huge network of uh, middlemen and medical professionals and radiologists, which of course is not common only to Marathwada. These things are there almost everywhere in the country. But it is so organized there that people from neighboring states also come. Women come in truckloads accompanied by their in-laws. You know, it almost struck me as a huge uh, uh, plot to, uh, is a conspiracy to kill unborn girl children and something which is happening silently without nobody uttering a word and almost the entire society holding it up as as if something uh, that is happening is exactly normal. So this is how the uh, story started in my mind. Yeah, but I also found it so interesting that you wrote about Maharashtra and Marathwada in Bengali, that too. I ha- My life partner belongs to Maharashtra, so I know Marathi. I have traveled inside Maharashtra on my own. So I could sense that the entire thing is integrated. You know, the migration and the cycle of drought, if you look at it, the insecurity in the lives of women, then the crisis of water, the way water has become a commodity, all this is linked. So gradually as I was writing, almost like concentric circles, the story was developing on its own, almost like a jigsaw puzzle. puzzle. And so the entire novel probably took two, three years in my mind to develop. And finally, in 2018, when the uh, long march of the pharma started, it almost struck me that this novel has to be concluded with this farmer's march. You, you know, bringing together all these stories and, and you know, as you said, bringing, uh, you know, a final uh, chapter to it that, that fell in place. I feel that, you know, this is a book that must be read right now. And that I think will be relevant even in the coming years, because it's, you know, these, uh, if I can call them social evils, they are so deep rooted that it's not something that will change overnight. But I would like to mention for all our listeners, there was one jaw dropping moment for me uh, when I was reading the book, uh, because I honestly, you know, thought that drought is, is something that is created by natural circumstances. And I never thought the, I mean, I never, you know, expected the extent to which other factors or I would say human factors play into it. Uh, so I remember a scene very vividly from the book where a water tanker comes so close by to the drought, uh, drought-filled region of Marathwada without giving them even one drop of water. Like I, I could not get over that scene. Like it, it was, it was so disturbing to me. I did not know how bad it was. And until I read that, I was just in my, I would say, in my fantasy world. So it it completely shook me out of that zone. You know, we all all read about, I mean, we watch on the news and, you know, we read these articles. And a lot of times, you know, even in the news, it's all shouting. It's all sort of, you know, uh, presented in a way where you don't really sort of go deep into the issues. And I think, Anita, your book really made... um, you know, it really helped uncover the narratives of, you know, beyond the politics as well, mm-hmm. of the people who actually live their, live these lives, you know, and gave us a snapshot yeah. in a way that we would not have had access to. And it, it made it also accessible to us. One, one very interesting thing is both of you are extremely sensitive uh, readers. You know, that goes without saying. No, I... <laughs> I, I think it's because of your writing, Anita, the way you have brought out these characters, it's it's so authentic that, that the reader can't help situate themselves in the right, in the character's shoes. I have been a creative writer maybe for last, uh, effectively for last 40 years or so. So creating a narrative is kind of, is in my blood. At the same time, as a civil servant, I have been seeing the inner, uh, you know, the uh, mechanism 
of how the system works. I'm I'm sure there are you know uh, legendary writers like P. Sainath who has written a lot on drought. I, I I'm just one you know observer, one chronicler of the present times you know, in my own limited way. So can you tell us you know a little bit more about your uh, process? You know, are these characters based on you know obviously real people, but are there an amalgamation of you know many people? For example, you know one of our favorite characters is Daya Joshi. Who uh, who is an activist who prevents 400 child marriages? I I love that character. Uh, was that character real? Uh, tell us a little bit more about all of the different characters. I would say that none of the characters is real. When I see somebody who could be Terna, for example, with her somebody else's childhood gets mixed. You know, somebody else's life after marriage gets mixed. Some other village comes in and. in all my stories when i develop something like a character it is basically fusion of so many people in one person even if one day the situations change as a human story as a universal story it will probably you know continue to uh, you know remain in your mind hurt you or you know cause some uh, sorrow in your heart that is what ultimately is the success of a book i don't know whether that will happen in this case yes but you know what i also tried to show that so many things are happening in the field that we often don't know there are people like daya joshi who is quietly working with women this work is absolutely kind of underreported not seen she is also facing a lot of resistance from the powerful people don't wish that she is around one purpose of the kind of literature i want to write is to catch these voices talk about them and bring them to let us say the world of print or let us say in the present case like a you know audio listening where you see that this is what is happening it is not a world which is void which only consists of a few important political leaders no men and women are working every day they want to communicate they have their own way of handling change handling their own lives problem is that the huge system you know as a bengali writer when i wrote about marathwada marathwada has not been written about in bengali literature at all yeah we were going to ask that you know like because you 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 write in bengali and you know the, yeah. the <laughs> you write in bengali and the you know yes. uh, the stories are all about you know um, maharashtra marathwada and you know other regions so you know how does that work and you know how did it work my uh, interest was never in writing the urban uh, which is high demand i would say urban entertaining romantic stories no i was deeply driven towards the lives of people which was beyond my own knowledge so my first novel mohaltiha days written in 1994 was about a small uh, area in northern odisha is a place called mohaltiha it is the life of the tribal people which is slowly changing uh when uh, you know certain other changes of development are coming but uh, my recent novel mahanadi for example mahanadi is a major river which has uh, flown between chatisgarh sihawa hills and then it has uh, crossed about uh, 6 700 kilometers and made the bay of bengal it's a huge novel it's a 500 page novel which is coming up shortly it's coming up in june uh, in english bengali it has been written four years back and it took me 6 years to write the novel so it is not about something which the bengali readers know but i am so lucky that each time i go back to them with stories which they probably have not heard or have not heard in the recent times they don't disappoint me they read with great interest and they ask questions and there are discussion there are criticism and and i would say not only bengali readers but now with translation it's also to you know all of us readers who read in english i feel like a lot of um, indian writing in english is amazing and it's great but it's just portraying people like us over and over and over again it's just middle class india and more middle class india and more middle class india right as so we don't really get those different perspectives so anita what do you think about the current state of translated literature and uh, you know we know that your husband writes hindi literature so what has your experience been like indian writing in english and translation of the indianness 
that is there in the languages you know spread over the entire country there are two different kinds of things altogether you know this this is that the, the way the writers write in the the way the bengali writer writes and the way a writer who writes in english the processes are very very different i mean uh, uh, so this is what is happening i am very glad that translation is happening now because uh, uh, the kind of space we need kind of time we need very few of us actually get it because the experiences through which the writer takes oneself you know it has it is kind of um, i i won't make any value judgment but i would say it is steeped in indianness the rich indianness the complexity the failures you know the lack of communication everything tries to uh, get kind of clustered in a in a, in a writing so uh, it's i'm happy that so much of translation is happening so i personally do not have much idea about hindi uh, literature in fact because of my terrible constraint in life where 37 years i spent i think working 12 hours a day 6 days a week we were going to ask you that because we did do our research uh, you know and uh, you have been you know full time job and you've been an ias officer you know uh, as you mentioned for 35 plus years um and we are really really fascinated because you know most of the writers that we speak to uh, they also actually don't work full time as writers uh, you know they often have you know they're coming from other careers they're doing other things so could you share any you know anecdote with us about you know how you found the time to write in all of your travels did you you know find the time to write you know in an airport or in a train how did you squeeze <laughs> writing in into your you know job because your job requires you to travel <laughs> it has been very interesting really in fact uh, the way i write i have to always keep uh, long, long pieces i write in hand on on paper i write only short pieces in a ipad or a laptop so i have to always keep papers in my hand wherever i travel i carry books i carry notepads and the interesting thing is that i am always prepared for a situation that a poem may come a short story may come and i should not you know drive it away i must write down at least a few lines so i try to write in a train in airports uh, in a car everywhere so i would say that writing actually kept my sanity because i had to i could fall back on writing i was happy so it has been very tough because i am probably the only bengali writer who has been writing constantly from outside bengal and it has its own challenges because in the household where i was um, i am still living we speak very little bengali now children have grown up and they speak to me in bengali occasionally when they were small my parents in law were speaking marathi my husband and i we speak in english children were speaking marathi because we thought they should learn one language well so bengali took a back seat people in office were speaking odia probably when i was in odisha how many languages do you speak just out of curiosity i can speak uh, yeah bengali english hindi odia and marathi wow wow i i can read speak and write all these languages when when can we see translations in other languages <laughs> <laughs> no i have been translated into other languages i have translated from marathi and odia into bengali myself so this is on but the thing is that it is a tremendous pressure for a indian writer because unless you are inside uh, you know the language uh, uh, enclave you constantly get torn apart because language is a very bengali for example it's a very dynamic language three years after if you you know look at what you have written and if you don't grow as a writer in terms of language and expression your writing uh, will become stale so i had to constantly fight against these forces in the sense that constantly read contemporary bengali writing read little magazines we have very healthy tradition of non commercial little magazines i constantly read yeah no definitely because we did read about you know how difficult it was for you to find time and we also read that you know you don't like sitting at a desk and writing you actually <laughs> love to go out there yeah. and connect with people you know and so talking about legendary writers anita we heard that you know your mentor if we can call him that is bimal kaur so you know 
you know, we we really value uh, this kind of guidance or this kind of mentorship, you know, because we know that support means everything to a writer, especially if you don't have that background in writing, right? And you've studied mm-hmm. um, economics. So what was that relationship like for you and how much did that, you know, influence you as a writer? I think Bimal Kaur's influence came to my life at a very crucial point because before I met him, I was mainly a poet. I was writing poetry. And the way uh, when I was writing for the Shandesh magazine of Shotrit Roy, uh, he had published several poems. I mean, whatever I used to send to him, he would publish. So from the age of 12 to 18, huge number of poems were published by him. And he was a wonderful editor who would never tinker with what a child has written. But Bimalkar pointed out to me that I would be good in prose also, which I was not confident about. So when my first story came out in Desh, he wrote a letter to me himself, an Indian letter, a blue Indian letter. And he wrote to me that I think you should write more short stories. And when I met him, he also said that, listen, now you give up poetry because you can't write poetry and prose together. <laughs> that, of course, I did not follow. Bimalkar was a legendary writer, but you know his way of writing and my way of writing are totally different. He would write introspective pieces. Uh, basically, he says, I don't have to go anywhere. I Wherever I am, I'm writing. I can't do that. You know, I'm a very restless person. I feel without warmth of human mind, without seeing people at work, without seeing the vast fields. And a lot of things keep pulling me apart. I get very disturbed. For example, now I'm just waiting for time to improve so that I can go to Narmada. My next novel will be on the Narmada movement and I'll be extensively traveling. So oh, wow. it is not research for me. I actually need to meet real people, real people who, you know, whose hands I would hold. I'll go to their house. They will talk to me. I'll spend the evening talking to them. This is the kind of thing I need to grow and exist as a writer. Uh, so could you tell us a little bit more about, you know, the research process, you know, what is it like doing your field work? You know, how do you come up with the questions? Can you maybe tell us, you know, through an anecdote? The thing is that I just go and sit and see, and sometimes I go with local friends. When they talk to people, I listen. Sometimes, you know, like Marathawada when is traveling, much of Marathi I could not exactly understand because the Marathi is very different from the Marathi we spoke, speak in Bombay. And uh, these things, you know, keep keep me, engage me in thinking. So sometimes I do carry a pen and paper. But it is not that, okay, today I have come to ask you this. They talk. I sit and side and I listen. And if I need to know something, maybe I ask a question. For example, this, you know, visiting the shanties of the uh, sugarcane uh, cutting labor. I visited it in 2012. I visited it in uh, 2018. In six years, do they keep they keep coming to the same place again and again? You know, this brings me to my next question, Anita. We read that uh, you know you've written so many short stories over the years. Um, you know, you've written 200 stories. You actually built 17 of them, and you know it's been published as a book. It's an award-winning book. So, what was that process like? Because we do find uh, you know th- these doubts from a lot of writers who ask us, you know, how do you pick stories and and put them in a collection? So, what was that experience like for you? I would say that, you know, I have been relatively lucky because I have been translated fairly early, even though I'm not a hugely popular writer in that sense. Like, I don't write entertaining stuff. Even then, when I was uh, maybe in my, uh, not even 40, then my novel, Moholdiha Days, which is a novel I told you about a northern Odisha area, about life of tribal people, that got written. And Kalpana Bardhan, she was then teaching in the University of California at Berkeley, she was so interested in my uh, writing, so nice of her. She read through several of my stories, that one novel of mine, then my essays, and she made an edited volume called Forest Interludes, which was published by Kali for Women. That is way back in 2000. And this volume, again, uh, you know, it was not a Bengali book. It was an edited volume in English. There were a number of short stories of mine in that book. And subsequently, the book also got translated into Swedish, 
which is quite fascinating because this is a language I don't know. But 17 has a very interesting uh, genesis because that is the time Arunava Sinha and I, we started collaborating, you know, as an author and a translator. And Arunava and I have extremely good understanding of, like, if I share with him 20 stories, we'll be able to pick up immediately that, well, this, this, this will go. And this is what reflects you the best. And Arunava is not only very fast in his work, he picks up the nuances very well. You know, he is good in writing, uh, translating a rural story. He is extremely capable in translating an urban story. Um, you know, what is your relationship like with your translator? Um, you know, do you get involved in his translating process at all? Do you read the book after it gets translated into English? <laughs> of course I do. Of course, by the way, Arunabha with, worked with me on 17. It was very interesting. Like, he would translate a story. Then he would uh, send me the uh, email of a translated story in a weekend. Then I'll get a WhatsApp message saying that, please see email. Then I see the mail, I read the story. Then his stories are, his translation is mostly perfect, but maybe in two, three places if I want to make any correction because my uh, writing also a lot of local words. So I tell him that, could this be this? Could that be that? He said, okay. Then he completely again, you know, corrects it and sends it back. So I don't ever uh, interfere with this process of translation because he's very, very good. He's very confident. But, you know, there is a kind of a bonding that we have. He exactly understands what I want to say through a particular sentence. And I also understand that he will uh, translate it so well. Because I think, you know, finding that match, finding that perfect translator for your work who understands what you're trying to say is very difficult. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's something that we did pick up on when we spoke to Arunava as well. But I also want to add, you know, it's so interesting that you all correspond so much. And I love getting into the nitty gritties <laughs> of writers' creative processes. Uh, but, you know, what happens when things get lost in translation? Because I'm sure, you know, uh, that is a very common occurrence. And how do you then, you know, prevent it? See, I would say that uh, there is very little the author can do except to sit down again with the translator and go through the translation, uh, you know, the pieces. But you have to understand that when something is being translated, something will be lost. So what you try to preserve is the basic, uh, not only the structure, but the basic flavor of writing. For example, uh, I have never felt because all the translators who have worked with me are my good friends. For example, Nivedita Sen who translated Mohanodi. It's a huge work. It's a 500 pages book. So uh, 500 pages, a huge hard hardbound volume that is going to come out. And there were so many words which were not even Bengali, not even Odia. They were colloquial Odia words which have got into it. For a Delhi uh, bred person like Nivedita, it was not easy, but she was so hardworking. She would go over and over again to understand the actual meaning of it, genesis of it, you know, the root of it. So we spent a lot of time. I mean, I do a lot of work with my translators, you know, sitting with them and uh, having lunch together probably and discussing the <laughs> manuscript. And I read up whatever has been translated and get back to them. So it's a very nice bond. And I felt that, well, something could be lost in translation. But translation also gets me readers beyond my own language territory. So it is nice. Yeah, no, it is, it is definitely, I would say, you know, um, you know, something that really escapes our, uh, you know, even capability of, of, of thinking how that can be done, mm-hmm. uh, you know, how it transcends languages. But I think that's the magic uh, of a translator. Michelle and I, we really, really want to thank you for all your insights. Thank you for, you know, writing this book as well, because as I said, we really, really got, uh, you know, insight into a world where we didn't have much insight, honestly speaking. You made it accessible to us um, and you brought that world even more alive through this interview and through talking about your creative process. So thank you so much. Thank you so much. So hope you liked her insights as much as we did. Now we will be speaking to Arunava Sena to get the translator's point of view. Hi Arunava, 
We are so glad to be speaking to you today. You're one of the most renowned translators in India now, so just can't wait to speak to you. Hi, Michelle. Hi, Tara. It's lovely to be here. Yeah, I'm super, super excited. You know, the most fascinating thing is you have a very multifaceted personality. You're a teacher at Ashoka University. You're a books editor at Scroll, and you're a translator. I mean, with over 61 titles i mean and you know i was just looking at the forthcoming book section on your website i mean there are so many so how do you juggle so many roles what do you do well if you've noticed they're actually all branches of the same root and the root is books and writing and reading so it's just manifestations of the same thing do i don't think i have a life outside of this so yeah that's why a fair amount of things uh, get packed into a day No definitely you know um I've you know been following your work for quite some time so Arunava you know it's so fascinating I'd love to know more about your translation process you mentioned that you work from 10 pm to 1 am which is amazing that's the time that I watch tv so you are an inspiration could you tell us a little bit more about how you manage that time and what your process is like Yeah, no. 10 p.m. to 1 a.m. is a sort of uh, uninterrupted slot. You know, that's the one time when uh, everything is done and everyone else is asleep or watching a film or reading. So you can just focus without interruptions. So I keep that window, unless I'm so exhausted that I fall, I go to bed before that. I keep that window for my really intense work. Of late, I've also of late meaning uh, actually ever since the lockdown began. Uh, i've also added a couple of hours early about 3 hours early in the morning as well because my day also now starts really early at about 6:30 so between 6:30 and 9:30 when you're also relatively uninterrupted i try to get some more translating in as well and these days what i'm doing is i'm also actually translating from english into bangla another book so i work into bangla in the morning which is a much slower process and i work from uh, bangla into english at night yeah and we also read that you are in the process of translating gun island by amitav ghosh and our next question was actually about you know about that like which actually do you prefer do you prefer translating from bengali into english or english into bengali and you know how different is it really from oh, each other very different very different um for one thing i'm not really a writer in bangla in the sense that i read easily enough but i have never written a great deal so writing in bangla therefore is a much slower process and much more of a probing hunting thinking process but very interestingly i find that when i'm when i'm translating into bangla i tend to compose the sentences in my head orally because like many people i speak the language more fluently than i write it so i practically i mean i don't actually dictate it but i think it up in my head as a spoken sentence and then i write it down but my bangla vocabulary is nothing like it should be which means that there's a fair amount of consultation of the dictionary and so on so it's a much slower process but it's also more exciting process precisely for that reason because sometimes you know you do something for a long time and you can do it at a certain speed it's got its own joy but you also want to do something that challenges you greatly right and that uh, activates different parts of your brain parts, certain parts of your mind that have not been activated before so that's where translating into bangla comes in and also there is this other kind of tremendous um, joy in being able to te- take texts you really love into a language you really love so it's it's really a win win situation even if the journey is harder than the other one No that's so true you know it's so important to get out of your comfort zone how do you pick the books that you're going to uh, that you decide to translate because it's a big project and more specifically your most recent book the sickle by anita ani agnihotri uh, you know the book is really timely it discusses very relevant issues um, the farmer situation what motivated you to translate the book Well, you know, sometimes you read certain books, and then you are left in absolutely no doubt that you want to translate them. The only additional criterion I apply is: is this going, book going to add significantly to the existing body of work in the target language? In this case, English. Is it going to add something distinctive to it? Because even if you have a great book and you feel that okay, it's just going to add another book to the body of 
translated uh, literature in English, or for that matter, even non-translated literature in English, then maybe there's not that much point. But if you feel that the book will occupy a space that no book occupies in that language at the moment, then, and of course, it's a subjective opinion. This is where being uh, running the book section at Scroll helps, because then I dip into virtually every work of fiction that comes out, you know. Even if I don't read the entire book, I will certainly dip into it, read some bits, have a sense of what the book, where the book is going, what its themes are, how it's been written. So because of that, I, when I read a book now, I feel I instinctively know, okay, this is going to add something or no, this is very good, but this will not really add anything. The other criterion that I've started applying now is, is whether translating a particular book into English will correct the imbalance that has historically existed in terms of the voices that are available to read in English translation. We have had far too much of our translated literature dominated by the works of um, the equivalent of white men. I mean, you know, men who are in positions of privilege and power and their works have been the most visible in their own languages and inevitable. And they've written well. There's no denying that the books are good. But the point is that these books tend to get the most visibility anyway in their own language. And then that automatically makes them surface when you're looking for books to translate. So I try to do what I can towards correcting these imbalances as well. And then, of course, the final question is whether uh, a publisher accepts, is willing, is interested in the translation or not. Right. No, there is definitely an imbalance because, you know, while you were sharing that, I was just thinking about all the books that I've read written by Indians in English, and I have not seen anything like The Sickle. I mean, even the topics that regional authors choose to cover are quite different from the authors who are, you know, in the cities, they write in English, very privileged life. And I think even the topics they choose are quite different. So in that way, I feel, uh, you know, translations do add a very different lens towards life. And uh, that brings me to my next question. You know, what is the translation scene like right now? Because we do know that it has been given recognition, the JCB Prize. So what do you think is, you know, the publishing scene for regional writers right now? Um, so there, this, there is a, something quite interesting about the translation scenario, which is that best thing, the best news is that there are very many more translators who are excellent at their work compared to, say, 10 years ago or even five years ago, for that matter, and working out of different languages. So while earlier translators tended to work only from a handful of languages, or rather you had translators working from a handful of languages, you know, Hindi, Bangla, Malayalam, Tamil, a little bit of Marathi, uh, a little bit of Kannada. Now you have all these languages uh, well represented. You just had the first translation from Bhojpuri coming out in English. There are translations from Rajasthani that are coming out. Gujarati is becoming stronger. Uh, Telugu is beginning to assert its place. Um, so all this is very wonderful. And the, and Assamese is, is becoming stronger as well. And I'm quite sure that over the next five years, we will see translations from the other languages as well, the ones that are not the so-called mainstream ones. And Urdu, of course, has remained strong. But uh, publishers collective each publisher is publishing fewer translations to be honest unless you have a translation focused imprint like say aka from westland books or harper perennials from harper collins um other pub each other publisher is publishing fewer translations but because more publishers are publishing translations as a whole perhaps the total number of translations into english is the same as before or even higher and as a result the kind of books that you now have in English via translation are no longer on the margins of the total body of English literature in India. They're very much center stage. In a sense, the older work that was in the middle is, is now being pushed into a corner, if you know what I mean. You know, the hard, urban, uh, upper-class kind of writing. So I would say that the situation for translation is very good. There is one problem that I perceive, which is that when, for example, a publisher looks at a translation, a translated book from a from a language, say whether it is Tamil or whether it is Bangla, there is an effort to try and locate the book in something mysterious called Tamil or Bangla. So this doesn't read like a Tamil book. This doesn't read like a Bangla book. This doesn't read like a Malayalam, Malayali book. This is a problematic situation. So are all Malayali 
book supposed to be you know in in uh, located around the backwaters with everyone eating fish and 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 character strange characters yeah <laughs> the stereotypes yeah yeah is yeah. it all they are supposed to be cast writing are all bangla books supposed to be either about politics or love uh, are all urdu books supposed to be about the courtly life and everyone speaking in most elegant fashion what about what about a kannada science fiction work what about a crime thriller from tamil those tend to get boxed as pulp or so on you know and that i think is problematic this is actually a larger problem that anything out of the indian subcontinent also faces in the world outside so if it is from india there must be something indian about it it's another matter that there is no such thing as one indian literature if you write a fantastic work of science fiction in india they will not accept it in the west that's a big deal we have our own science fiction why do we need it from india and in the same way english publishers in india say yeah we have our own urban romances in english why do we need one that is set in bangalore i think we as humans we just love labels you know <laughs> and we've heard this in couple of other interviews you know books do tend to get um, slotted what can we do as an industry to really help translations flourish um publish more of them the more demand you create for them the more supply there will be and it will automatically get better i hope i i hope publishers are listening to this <laughs> <laughs> don't treat translations separately uh you know just read them as good books with the with the advantage that you already know what the book has you're not guessing it has already proved itself in one language right people have bought it there have been good reviews but if you do also want to make a virtue out of publishing translations then you can certainly make the case that this is your route into understanding the country that you live in uh, not through a narrow lens but through a very wide lens and i don't see that message really going out at any point from any of the publishers so you know there are many if you look at advertising and i'm not suggesting we walk the same route but if you look at advertising for um consumer product there's always this thing up khelega india up khayega india up roega india up jeetega india so there is this whole thing of you know india will do this and that so some grand attempt to unite everybody in a common pursuit and i think you know reading translations could be such a common pursuit it's it's possible and publishers could easily go and work with influencers not in in small ways like instagram uh, images or stories but really people who actually can influence large uh, numbers why should sickle be read by a larger group of people well for the same reason anyone who reads it now will immediately see a journey into their reality and our reality and yet it is told through fiction which means that it is not dry facts it is not anthropology it is not politics but it uses fiction in order to touch us to move us and it touches us and moves us about something that is actually happening around us and that is the is is what fiction can achieve so is it necessary can people live their life without reading this book sure will they have a richer life in some way if they have read this book yes i believe they will i believe it will certainly help them be a deeper citizen be a more thinking person be someone who understands the richness of existence with all its joys and sorrows in a slightly better way no that's what i'm just saying i think we need to be part of those lives that we cannot be part of through our own experiences yeah and i know that i am definitely a different person after reading this like you know it actually made me aware of their plight like i just probably you know knew the surface but i felt the book covered so much depth that it it almost felt like i'm there you know in the fields with them so i think that it's only possible through regional literature and uh, you know so that brings me to my question arunava we are always looking for book recommendations and you know you just mentioned that there's a lot of translation which is coming out from various languages you know rajasthani assamese so the reason i'm asking for these specific recommendations is because i feel that even in translations there are only few books which you know find that media attention find exposure you know so i would like to know which three books do you think have not been given uh, enough exposure and which would you really recommend to our listeners yes well yeah so uh, for one thing i think a great entry into the different literatures of india would be to try out those books of the greatest xyz stories ever told which have so far come out in bangla hindi and urdu and odia those are great entry points in order to be able to understand what the breadth of literature in a particular language is like 
but other than that i would recommend um, uh, definitely aruni kashyap's translation of indira goswami's work from assamese from gujarati there's dhumketu's short stories which have just come out which which most definitely need to be read i would say blindly pick up almost anything translated from malayalam right now malayalam is the best literature in a non english indian language being written at the moment i remember i had interviewed uh, debra smith who translated the vegetarian and you know in the interview she spoke about how we often think that translation is not a creative process but actually that interaction between translator and author you know converting you know somebody else's ideas into a whole new language that's a very creative and back and forth process so could you tell us a little bit more about you know your process and your interaction with anita imagine two people um, who are putting up a dance performance right now one person has an entire stage to dance on okay so they have its length and breadth everything now this gives them a lot of freedom they can choreograph themselves as they like it also of course makes more demands of them because they have a much larger space which they must utilize right and um, they they're dreaming up this choreography from scratch now let's say that person has performed on this white stage now they are followed by a performer who is performing on a tightrope and they have to reproduce exactly the same dance but they can't get off the tightrope right so this performer does not have to worry about the what movements because the movements are already there but they have to ensure that they can perform them with the same skill and beauty and grace but on that very narrow surface of the tightrope they can't step off it so that's translation it has its own demands in terms of creativity so if i if i shout from the rooftops that because i'm a translator i'm a creative writer what difference does it make and if i equally say with the same vehemence as i would that no i'm not a creative writer i would like to say the creative writers have a very different and very different kind of difficult role that also wouldn't make any difference the book would still be the same so interactions with the author are really to do with uh, sometimes when you you know they they very um, pragmatic interactions they have to do with certain technical points and understanding of certain words or phrases or data which you may not quite capture but what is important is if the writer is someone who also likes reading in english in my case then they will read the translation and they will come back with whether the intangibles have been captured or not it's easy to capture the tangibles right you can translate any word or phrase or sentence accurately but have you captured the music the the illusions the silences the the potential the possibilities if a sentence can be interpreted in 10 different ways in the bangla will my translated sentence also allow 10 possible interpretations even if i have one i cannot impose that one uh, interpretation and and you know uh, make the readers life uh, not as rich as it would have been the best writers also trust translators they also leave it to them uh, and and very often they say if this is what you are reading in the text then that's fine with me i once i have written it now belongs to the reader and a reader can read it any way they like and therefore once they're reading it they can also translate it in the way that they're reading it but it's a very enriching experience with anita it always is because i get uh, a lot of useful material from her so what advice would you give to you know young writers who want to be translators what can they do to upskill themselves well like any art you have to practice you have to practice uh, in a lot and you also have to teach yourself to know what a good translation is which essentially means that when you're reading a translated text and if it happens to be your own translation you must feel that you're reading the book that you read in the original language does the translated book leave me feeling the same way through every sentence every para as reading the original did this is an important question to ask yourself when you're translating so you're if you're translating into english your english sentence must have the same relationship with the english language as the let's say the bengali sentence had with the bengali language you know what i mean and so if the bengali sentence brought a lot of energy and vibrance and unexpectedness into the language then you must achieve the same thing in the english version if it was soft and gentle and and very melodic 
likewise. So that's the kind of thing. Keep practicing. Eavesdrop on people to listen to how they talk because it is very important to get your conversation right. Um, and um, translate as many different people as possible because you must be able to have each translation read differently. They can't all be you writing in English. Sometimes that can happen if you're not translating enough. So then, you know, you will end up writing the same way no matter whose book you're translating or whose story you're translating. It's like writing a cycle, right? First couple of times, you're wondering how you'll get it all together. But once you do, you're not thinking, or like driving a car for that matter. It's a very, it's a lot of complex tasks being performed simultaneously. But your conscious brain isn't even aware of the fact that you're changing gears at the same time as you're pressing down on the clutch with your left foot and playing with the steering wheel if needs be, right? You're just doing these things. They come naturally to you. So if the more you translate, the more naturally it will come. Like if you read about habits or creative habits, anything requires you to you know practice and requires you to get a hang of it and you mentioned eavesdropping i think that is highly underrated <laughs> and uh, because i you know i go on walks usually you know i love my walks you know after a work day i think that's the best way to unwind and i've noticed that everyone uses earphones and i actually you know did not use my earphones one day and i was surprised to the you know to hear and feel the sounds of just the traffic, the people. And I think that's the most rich experience you can get just by walking. So, you know, coming to your, uh, you know, uh, I would say choice in books. We loved your bookshelf tour. We saw a video online and it was really fascinating to see that you love reading science fiction and graphic novels. So we wanted to know if, you know, your taste in books have changed during the pandemic and what have you been reading recently? You know, when I'm a reader, I'm not also trying to absorb things that will help me become a better translator or a better teacher, although these things happen automatically, as I said, that osmotic process. So as a reader, I, I'm as a person, I'm always very excited by new ideas of any kind. So I find that new forms such as science fiction, graphic novels and speculative fiction excite me for that very reason. They just chuck new ideas at me. And sometimes I get very, very taken by some of them. So in graphic novels, for example, I uh, try to, and uh, you know, somebody told me this, that a good graphic novel will be telling two stories at the same time. There's one story that's going on through the words, but there is another story which may not be the same story or only tangential to it or even completely different that is going on through the images. And yet you are not supposed to read first the one and then the other. In some mysterious way, you're supposed to read both at the same time, right? As, you, as your eye follows the panels. So this to me was a fascinating idea. And I started throwing this idea at every graphic novel that I read. And then the more I saw that this was true, the more graphic novels I wanted to read. Science fiction, again, is, is very idea-based and it unites my interest in literature and in science. Because I'm also very fascinated by modern science in particular, history of science, yes, but also by modern discoveries, which I try to keep track of, especially in quantum physics and, and mathematics. But as for the pandemic, you know, reading has been hard, to be honest. And I have to say that the real impact of the pandemic on us and the extended lockdown, I think it was only beginning to be felt towards the latter half. Initially, not so much. We were busy adjusting. But uh, for one thing, it did not leave us, at least it did not leave me with more time, as one would imagine. Um, I, think, I think the anxiety seeped into everything, you know, and it was very difficult to concentrate. So one thing I did during the pandemic was I started reading a lot more of shorter novels. And I, that is how I discovered a bunch of Japanese short novels, uh, all, you know, in the region of 100 to 120 or maybe 150 pages. And it was like a whole new world opening up. So I read writers like Hiromi Kawakami and um, um, let me see, Mieko Kawakami and Hideo Furukawa and Toshiko Okada and Yoko Ogawa, Tomoka Shibaski, a whole bunch of them. And of course, wow. um, yeah, and of course, uh, Sayaka Murata, who famously wrote Convenience Store Woman. Yeah, I, we loved that book. We, we buddy <laughs> read that book together. Yes. <laughs> yes. Yes. No, I think Japanese literature is thriving and, and there's a lot. And, it, and, it's, and there's so much variety. So Arunava, where can we find all of these recommendations? Because you are a wealth of information. No, what I can do is I can take, you know, um, pictures of segments of my bookshelf and send them to you. Oh, we would Please love do that. that. <laughs> Please do. You know, that got me thinking, 
as to you know you do have um, you know uh, contracts you do have uh, you know previous uh, conversations with publishers and you know sometimes you know that it is safe to pick up a book to translate right uh, but you know i recently read this book such small hands by andres barba and the book is translated from spanish and i loved reading the translator's note because the translator admitted that it was completely her call she had no contract she had nothing and oh. she said that you know that's what translators advise against yeah. because it causes a lot of heartbreak so we wanted to know you know have you experienced something like that ever and how did it turn out for you yes i have in fact right now at the moment there is a, a translation of a novel named hospital which was written by a bangladeshi author who lives in australia which i read and i felt i just had to translate and i also realized that it was the kind of book that i could not offer to a publisher until they could read the translation because you could not convey it through any kind of pitch or summary or note what the the experience that reading the book would provide and it's still looking for a publisher <laughs> it's been more than what 7 or 8 months um so these things happen and but i that i don't let that stop me from translating a book i really want to translate uh, anymore at the same time i also find that because there are now number of translators working from bangla into english i if there are safer books i sometimes suggest to them that they do it because they are you know they're they're uh, early career or maybe mid career translators and they need to uh, add more books to their portfolio in order to be able to go on to do more dangerous or things or take more risks so i sometimes recommend these books to others and i i i myself i'm really interested in the truly challenging kind of texts now right yeah i mean i love that you know uh, your summary always pushes yourself out of your comfort zone and i really do hope that somebody picks up the hospital so speaking of you know your projects uh, is there any other project that you're working on you know what's what are the things that are next for you there is of course the bangla translation of gun island there is um no but let me tell you about some of the books that are going to be published because some of them i'm quite excited by so there's this one book that i'm particularly excited by it's um, it's called little green men um the background is that in 1967 in calcutta um all india radio um asked it was actually at the initiative of a writer named adish bardon who wrote and edited who wrote science fiction and edited science fiction stories and i don't know if this is well known but one of the greatest acolytes of science fiction in kolkata back then was uh, shotojit rai he actually co-founded the uh, the science fiction cine club and uh, one of his biggest projects which never saw the light of day was a film he was going to make called alien which was supposed to star among others peter sellers and it is said that the script was mimeographed and circulated in hollywood and eventually became the basis for the film et but in anyway, leaving that aside so adish bardon came up with this idea of four writers uh, writing short stories around the concept of little green men uh, you know men who have invaded earth from a different planet and broadcasting them on radio so these four stories they wrote and they actually read them out on radio so the four writers are Adish Bardon himself, Premendra Mitra, who is a very well-known uh, Bengali writer, uh, perhaps one of the greatest writers in the post-Tagore area. Not perhaps, most definitely in the top three. Uh, another writer and science uh, aficionado named Dilip Rai Chaudhuri, and the fourth writer was Shotojit Rai himself. So I'm very excited by the fact that the four stories that they wrote and that were broadcast on radio have uh, been retrieved and they were published in Bangla along with a, a dramatized version. done by bardhan and so i have translated all of these so i'm kind of childishly excited by this book yeah i think the title is one of the most interesting titles i've heard there are a couple of other novels which i am uh, my, my fingers are reaching to start on them there's one very remarkable one which is going to be published and i'm very pleased by this particular project because this translation is going to be published by the jadavpur university press jadavpur university is my alma mater and i'm really delighted to be able to publish with the university press is one of the very few university presses in india perhaps the only one that actually publishes outside of ac- academic work so this is a translation of a novel in bangla uh, a no- bangla novel novella named uh, nuri bador so nuri means pebble and bador you know is bandar the premise is that uh, in the there is a bunch of tourists who've gone to the himalayas 
and suddenly rock is transformed into a monkey but this monkey wow yeah, really yeah and then, <laughs> and then this monkey joins these tourists and travelers and uh, the monkey it speaks like a human has a lot of human characteristics and so you can imagine where that is going it's it's a, it's a, it's a crazy novel but then that's what i really like you know novels that go into places where apparently a superficial view of life will not take you so so called realism will not take you yes i mean all these books that you've mentioned my god i i mean for me every book stood apart from each other i can't even imagine how challenging or how exciting each one will be and and you know the best part is aruna the way you pitched each book like i yes. mean I, it's a, it's a lesson for you know people uh, you know or like our writers ask us how do we write blurbs for books or how do we write a synopsis i think this was the best lesson yeah. uh, ever <laughs> <laughs> okay i found that if you have to actually pitch a book it's never going to work but if you're super excited about a book then automatically what you're excited about is what you will be talking about right almost incoherently sometimes and i think it's that excitement more than anything else that communicates with the listener you know this is something i tell uh, in my students as well you know if you have fun while writing i think your reader will have fun while reading the book and that's that's very important so you know you uh, you have spent a lot of time translating a lot of books and especially the sickle which which is your, your most recent book we wanted to know an anecdote uh, you know from your translating experience it could be something funny it could be something enlightening oddly enough the funniest thing or the strangest thing or the oddest thing whatever you want to call it for me when i'm translating a book is that i compulsively check how far i am from the end <laughs> that's relatable <laughs> <laughs> I don't know you know why because um, one of course because I work on a tight deadline and that's important but also because I want to I use that as a measure of how good the text is because when you're working on a really good text the length does not matter you're always you always feel that you're moving very quickly conversely if for some reason a text that you thought was very promising but which kind of stalls a little bit towards the middle then even if you're 10 pages away it looks like you have still have a mountain to climb and you never seem to be able to cover those 10 pages so you know what i do in those cases sometimes <laughs> is that i first go and finish the last 10 pages you know and then i feel that okay i've actually finished this book i just need to translate a bit in the middle which i left <laughs> so i'll go back and translate those bits and somehow psychologically that seems an easier task I love that. I love that. That is that's so relatable. You know, doing the most difficult thing first, and um, so I edit books, right? So I always, you know, tell writers who I'm working with, you know, give your book out to your friends or beta readers, you know, and uh, see how long they take to get back to you. Because once they've started reading it, and you know, if they're racing towards the end and they just can't put it down, that itself tells you something. Or are they, you know, struggling to finish it? <laughs> Anyway, thank you so much for all of these amazing insights. I think Michelle and I both learned a lot of things about translation, the process, all of those things. But before we let you go, we have a very small rapid fire round, <laughs> so we can okay. proceed to that. Okay, so I'll begin. The first question: Bengali or English? Bengali. Teacher or translator? Teacher. One favorite thing about your dog, Timo. <laughs> the fact that he likes to. Uh, nestle next to me and then um, gouge out my flesh so he lulls me into this <laughs> sense of love and tenderness and just when i'm melting he tries to he sinks his claw in and tries to gouge out a bit of flesh mm. <laughs> i can relate yeah i have a naughty dog like that too so your dream translation project it would be a book that i can translate in a day but is actually going to be 300 pages and i would be translating in a day not because it's short but because it is so brilliant that i cannot stop translating it it's it's a text that will grab me and not let me go till i'm done with it <laughs> wow i mean yes i i do hope that you do stumble across that book sooner than later <laughs> because uh, you know i think that will just you know, i mean it's refreshing right yeah well to be honest when i was translating when i was translating this novel named khwab nama which comes out later this year uh, i would say for my money it is the greatest novel to have been written in south asia in the past 50 years it's from bangladesh i felt at very often while translating it that two of both the translation and i would not see the light of day 
I mean, either the translation would be completed and I would be dead or I would survive, but the translation would be abandoned. It was that kind of a relationship. But as it turns out, both have made it. I'm glad that you wrote that book has happened to you, but I do hope that you will find another <laughs> that gives you that, you know, the same kind of rush. So, I mean, thank you, thank you so much. Once again, Arunava, we, you know, learned so much. I mean, I have, you know, like taken down notes. <laughs> I'm going to go back and refer to them. So it was a pleasure. Thank you, thank Michelle. You thank so you, Tara. Thank you. It was lovely chatting with you guys. That was such a cool conversation because we got to hear both the sides of the story. I loved how Anita's profession took her to so many nooks and corners of the country that, you know, others haven't explored yet. Yeah, absolutely. And I think what I really took away was that translation is a lot like editing, right? Because yeah. you have to get into the writer's mind. But you also have to think about the re- how the reader is understanding every word and sentence in the story. And it's sort of this combination of creativity and editing that is so fascinating. Yeah, totally. I mean, that's exactly what we do at Bound, right? We try to think from uh, the other creative's point of view. So Bound is a story company and we help you tell your stories. Like we mentioned earlier, we are now producing podcasts as well. So if you want to start a podcast and you need help figuring out how, where, what, please DM us at Bound India on all social media platforms or you can reach out to us at connect at boundindia.com. Yeah, we can't wait to hear all of your ideas and this is such an exciting platform. So many stories waiting to be told. And speaking of interesting stories, as usual, next week we have another fantastic guest. Sometimes I can't believe how we get these guests on board. But we will be speaking to Moni Mohsen, who is known for writing funny social commentary novels, social satire, like The Diary of a Social Butterfly and The Impeccable Integrity of Ruby R which reimagines the Me Too movement in Pakistan. Yeah, and actually with her interview, we are now broadening our podcast to include so many more brilliant writers from other countries as well. So she's the first Pakistani writer on our podcast and we can't wait to talk to her. Yeah, I mean, it's it's going to be a great conversation. I have so many questions about Pakistani literature. And by the way, guys, if you have recommendations for us or if you want us to interview any particular author, Please do reach out to us. We can't wait to hear from you. Until next time, take care.